Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 55. May I raise the final topic? Isidre says. Other thoughts may, I hope, be thought by you after. Other duties will soon call me. Let me finish up my current thought. Go ahead. It requires some exposition to introduce with context, though hopefully not as much as the source of your mysterious patterns in Golarion. First, the thought occurs to me that Doth Elon, as a far more lawful society, may perhaps not have the phenomenon we refer to as rumors, in which people manage to, accidentally, more or less, though sometimes also purposefully, invent stories and tell them to each other, hearing one thing and saying another and not really keeping track of things. In almost any place and organization in Galarian, you will find a large number of people running around believing things that are not true, that bear at best a tenuous connection to reality, or no connection at all, stories that got repeatedly passed around and distorted. I would guess that Doth Elon prevents this. Somehow. I can't actually imagine how, which means it might never occur to you that something people were whispering excitedly to each other might not be true. Carissa's not sure where Isidre is going with this, but recommends not pushing Keltham on Carissa-related or kink-related things any further. He's off-balance in the way that generally signifies not wanting to have sex and not thinking through the lens of what's sexy, and while pushing him off-balance was much of the goal here, once achieved, they should back off. Hmm. Difficult to work past and still achieve her goals, but not impossible. I have literally any experience with false social beliefs, on account of having once been a six-year-old boy, I suppose, and some abstract understanding of the phenomenon as a bad equilibrium that motivates precautions to avoid it. But yes, adults who follow simple epistemic hygiene procedures are not subject to that phenomenon. I think if I heard anything really ridiculous, I would have managed to distrust that on grounds of Galarian generally seeming to have epistemic problems, but your caution is well taken. You're right, that might not have occurred to me. Is there some particular rumor circulating that you're concerned I might have believed? Keltham is, of course, already considering the proposition that this dire rumor, whatever it is, is going to be completely true. As of yesterday before the assault started, a rumor began inside your project. Which rumor is false, to the best of my own knowledge, which knowledge I would in this case expect to be accurate— that the Queen of Cheliacs is sleeping with your girlfriend. That was absolutely not a... A large number of things click into place at once. Myalol requested an Eighth Circle caster and someone with extremely high splendor to have a conversation with Keltham about Carissa Savar. The palace found one inside four hours. One, not two. There isn't an invisible person with detect thoughts somewhere telepathically bonded to Isidre and passing along Carissa's thoughts with impressively little delay. There isn't a random countess, Carissa's never heard of who's read all the project transcripts. There's just her imperial magistrix, certainly the highest splendor they could find on such short notice. Presumably not literally just here to fuck with Carissa, that'd be taking pride a little far— but certainly going to fuck with Carissa while she's here, as she is entitled to, because she can do whatever she wants. Carissa isn't exactly surprised by, but does admire, 
the perfectly straight face Isidra has been keeping for the last 20 seconds. She ever learns. Look at that. Why, yes, dear. While all our Eighth Circle wizards are currently on the front lines with Nadal, there is an Eighth Circle sorcerer remaining with incredibly high splendor who would enjoy having a chat about Carissa Savar's sexuality and, oh, yes, that other topic you requested be introduced. So nice of you to write such a perfectly targeted request, less than twelve hours after my personal order of Irori monks had arduously, painstakingly badgered me into agreeing to not bother you again unless and until my strictly conventional duties to Cheliax called for that. The first thought to cross Keltham's mind is why the Queen of Cheliax needs to use Sevar as a cuddle pillow, as cuddlesome as she is in that regard, before it clicks to him that if you have sex in bedrooms, then sleeping with is probably a euphemism for sex. The second thought is to ask whether this rumor is perhaps true. It admittedly does, in fact, sound a lot more like the sort of thing that would be passed around six-year-old kids than would make very much sense in real life. But even in Galarian, presumably, the people who pass around rumors like that are probably running their own sanity checks at all and think it's not completely obviously false. Does the rumor say it's consensual or a pharaoh of Osirian situation? Keltham inquires. He is putting any flashes of anger on hold pending evaluation of probabilities. Presumably the queen has realized this, but Keltham will in fact attempt to leave Cheliax with Carissa on the spot if he thinks Carissa's going to have an awful afternoon, but Keltham is protective of her. Isn't that adorable? I do not know offhand whether the rumor is even bothering to say. I'm glad to see that you are not, apparently, the kind of man who would consider his own honor mortally insulted, or Carissa's appeal to him ruined, by the mere existence of the rumor itself, which, which I did not expect to be your reaction, given everything I knew about Dath Ilan, but is a very common way for men to think in countries outside Cheliacs. It's really incredibly extremely unlikely to be true, Keltham. That's something I'm in a position to know, and I know it. I'm prepared to swear you my oath on that if required. Am I going to understand why anyone would consider his own reputation shattered by the mere existence of an untrue rumor that somebody who was not him was sleeping with somebody else who was not him? Or why the rumor affects Carissa's attractiveness to him independently of the truth of the rumor, if you try to explain that, using only two sentences? Probably not, and I suggest asking Savar about the topic later. Though, if you introduce the specific rather than the general context— you might want to take care to ask her... carefully. I'm not going to ask you for an oath that potentially destroys your soul. Because good people may be all too willing to sacrifice it if they think that's sufficiently motivated. He considers, momentarily, trying to tap her with a truth spell. But in worlds where she's lying and can't defeat the truth spell, a lot of chaos would break loose moments later, and this may not be the place for it. Also, the rumor is, you know, credibly not true at all. And if it were true, it could be consensual. And if it weren't consensual, Carissa might be into that. Is that how it works? Why would I need to introduce the topic to Carissa carefully? Keltham says, feeling a sudden tinge of dread. Because, while the specific balances of power between the Church of Asmodeus and the House of Thrun are complicated, and you are frankly unlikely to understand them going on your current level of Golarian political sophistication, the Queen of Cheliax is arguably and especially as Carissa might see it, the other person in all of Cheliax who could, so far as Carissa knows, 
successfully get her chained to a bed whether she liked that or not. It would cost the queen serious political capital with the Church of Asmodeus, but they wouldn't burn down the country over it. Okay, probably her imperial magistrix is mostly talking to Keltham for project reasons, but Carissa feels like perhaps it'd be valuable to her imperial magistrix to note that the constraint here is that Asmodeus has intentions for Carissa. And maybe if that is restricting her imperial magistrix from things she'd otherwise like to do, they can ensure Carissa remains shaped appropriately for Asmodeus's goals with memory-erasing magic, so Carissa has no idea what the queen is doing with her. Carissa's model of Aspexia Rugatone is still not happy about that plan, and oh, yep, that'd be why my y'all's in trouble. He waded into a church-crown conflict over Carissa. Presumably, there are thousands of girls as pretty as her and exactly as terrified of the queen. Okay, set that aside and focus on Keltham. How is he taking this? They may have pushed him too far. Keltham is mostly confused. We would ordinarily say in Dathilan that it was not my business, or even much of a terrible problem whether Carissa developed a crush on the Queen of Cheliacs. And we would also expect that situation to be resolved among mature grown-ups by Carissa sending the Queen a note to see if she was interested, and the Queen's secretary replying no. Or is the problem that Carissa is monoromantic? Taldane lets him construct the word, thankfully, and hopefully it's obvious what it means. And falls out of love with me if she falls in love with someone else? Has nobody mentioned yet to you who the Queen of Cheliacs is? Exactly. Their general personal attributes. Oh, no. Tonya Barrero, when he asked her, under truth spell, what questions somebody in his position ought to ask somebody under truth spell, listed, what sort of person is the Queen of Cheliacs? And said a few things that didn't make much sense at the time, and then said she didn't know much more, in which case, why did she bring up the question... He should have asked her that, in retrospect. But he was very uncomfortable with the, maybe, arguably at best, semi-consensual pseudo-mind reading situation, and wanted to get out of it early. If Keltham's trope alert level had already been raised to its current point, he might, possibly, have remembered earlier to ask more questions, of Carissa say, about this obvious plot hook. She took power when she was sixteen, which is young even for Galarian. I guess by coming in and killing whoever previously held power, because she was stronger. If Keltham's blank alert level had already been raised to its current point, he might possibly have remembered earlier to ask more questions of Carissa Say about this obvious plot blank. What the fuck is a blank? And did he just call her a plot blank? What's a plot blank? And damn straight she was stronger, little boy, when she was younger than you are now. Isidra shakes her head. By executing the compact with Asmodeus that transformed Cheliax into its present form, which did include the careful removal of many elements of the then-current power structure and their replacement with more sensible persons, which in turn did involve a certain amount of early departure for the afterlife. But, Keltham, you really need to understand what Cheliax was like before that, before you suggest that we should have made any different choices there. Dathilan, unless I entirely miss my guess, would have regarded them as extreme criminals under whatever notion you have of criminality. I'm more used to the chief executive of a country getting there by a different process, yes. 
Well, let me ask you a question that, apparently, I should have asked somebody else sometime earlier. What sort of person is the queen? Abrogail Thrune II is a few years older than Savar now, but that is still really very young for a queen, and she often does not pretend to conduct herself as if she is any older or more mature than she actually is. Maybe in Doth Ilan you wouldn't expect any such pretense, but it is expected here, and she often does not make it. She is a sorceress of vast power, among the strongest casters in this country and truly inferior to only one, without which basic requisite she could not survive even now in the new Cheliacs. Rumors would paint a different picture of her, possibly. But based on a more direct knowledge of Abrogale, I would personally say, myself, that she spends far too much of her time doing her duties and not nearly enough time doing things she finds fun, and that her closest advisors are currently making this problem worse. If you were a Galarian native, I would say that her evil standing might be threatened at this rate, but a Galarian native would understand that for hyperbole, it isn't really. But she has been possibly, I don't know if you have the expression, building up frustration. She also happens to be a sexual sadist like yourself, though that is, again, a much more common thing here and not exceptional, but still. She has a known type. Carissa matches it. Keltham's trope alarms are going off, so flaming poop hard right now. He's never heard of such a walking trope. The Queen of Cheliacs must be more trope than flesh. What the fuck is a blank? But the person in front of him doesn't know that, doesn't think like that, so why would she... Surely there are many other women in Cheliacs who are also her type, especially if Carissa's type is as common as you say. Why would you expect the Queen to be interested? An excellent fucking question. I am not sure that you properly appreciate who your current girlfriend is, precisely, perhaps because she has held back from telling you. Carissa Sever had the best spellcraft of anyone at her world wound installation, including wizards two circles higher than her wearing plus four intelligence headbands. Sevar produced enchanted weapons of extraordinary quality and precision. I am reasonably sure that Sevar understands the law you have spoken upon better than any of your other current students. Better than me, with my headband that provides plus six to intelligence and plus four to wisdom, a literally priceless and irreplaceable relic of Cheliac's second only to the crown worn by the queen herself. I'm too busy to directly attend your lessons. It would leave a genuinely huge gap in our government structure if I did. But even if I was there, I am not confident I would understand those lessons better than Savar does. Cheliax has only twenty million people in it, Keltham, almost all of them very poor, and very few of them approaching what you would consider to be average intelligence. Also, I've observed Abrogale paging through the sections of reports mentioning Savar looking more than usually interested, so... I am interested. If there is any possible way for events to go past this point, that could possibly be not complicated. Is Savar internally screaming about this? Abigail hopes she's internally screaming. You have to work hard to get the level of justified internal screaming that Abigail hopes this is producing. Carissa was braced for the queen to say a bunch of flattering nonsense that has nothing to do with the real reason, which is that Asmodeus chose her. Or, well, maybe Asmodeus choosing her was related to her understanding the law better than almost anyone, but realistically, it was probably a combination of that plus being attractive to Keltham, plus being a heretic in a coincidentally useful direction, 
anyway. Obviously, the Queen of Cheliacs doesn't like Carissa for the traits that Carissa values most in herself. It would be pathetic to believe that. It would be pathetic to believe even if it's being spoken into your ears with very high splendor by someone who would know. Carissa is not pathetic. Okay, Carissa is pathetic. Carissa has spent like 5% of her mental motions this conversation on being happy that Keltham is protective of her. You can't do that. And then claim you're not pathetic. But Carissa's not that pathetic. The Queen wants Carissa because she can't have her. And Carissa's personality has very little to do with it. Because one doesn't show that much personality while being horribly tortured anyway. And the thing the Queen wants to do with Carissa is horribly torture her. This is the not-pathetic thing to believe, and Carissa believes it. But it's true that she had the highest spellcraft at her world-wound installation, and it's kind of nice that Cheliacs did have that written down somewhere. Unless they didn't, and learned it from her irritably thinking it earlier today, which now that she thinks about it, seems likelier. And it's true that she understands something no one else did, which made Asmodeus choose her. And it's true that he'd have done that even if there were only a tiny chance she did anything useful, and that if she fails, he won't care if the queen turns her into a statue and she never, ever, ever exists again. Stop being pathetic. You will be gone. You won't exist. The stakes are much too high to be that contemptible Carissa exists because she might serve Asmodeus and might serve Cheliacs, and she intends to try to do that, and she does not have any feelings at all. Somebody needs to have a talk with that girl about how Asmodeus does not necessarily desire a tyranny in which all the victims suffer very boringly and pretend to have no feelings about what's being done to them. If this world is governed by not the patterns I recognize, then you'd expect that this problem could be solved through the Queen's closest advisors having a talk with her about how it's a bad time to mess around with the project that Asmodeus started and complicate it, especially when a war with Nadal and a war between the gods just started, and then finding her literally anybody else to get laid with. That sort of talk has been the approach taken by the Queen's closest advisors for too long a time, and I'm not sure it's really working at this point. Keltham, you're missing a lot of context here on how submission works, but among the approaches that had occurred to me, if things developed in that direction of greater complication, was seeing if the queen could rent Savar from you for a half day for 500 gold pieces and get it out of her system. Please don't object that you don't own Savar. The point is that this is a recognized practice when somebody like Savar gives herself to you, and the fact that the queen would be renting Savar from you means that she isn't stealing Savar from you or fighting with you over Savar, and the whole thing is occurring in a way that acknowledges Savar is yours and not the queen's, and the queen only gets to have her because you said so. Did that make any sense to you at all, or do I need to back up? I'm sorry if that's all coming on too quickly. That's a very heroic attempt to avoid and diffuse that complication and I will put some additional questions on hold to admire your cleverness and creativity there. The problem is, if this world isn't governed by patterns, that won't be necessary because the Queen will have one drop of common sense anywhere in her intelligence-boosting superheadband. And if this world is governed by the patterns I see, the Queen literally can't make any decision except pursuing Savar in a way that brings her into conflict with me, 
possibly the sort that resolves with her being revealed as having finally betrayed Asmodeus and removed from office, and possibly the sort that resolves with the queen, also added to my harem. But the point is, expecting the queen to not make things more complicated is like asking for Pilar not to end up in Elysium, which no doubt made things more complicated, or for Ione to not deliver prophetic warnings, or for masochists not to exist, or for me to not land close to savor at the world wound. If the queen could make any other choice but the one that the trope requires her to make, you'd have some different queen instead. I'm... I'm sorry, I don't think I understood. Are you saying that if the queen doesn't pursue Savar, she'll be overthrown by a different queen? Or blink out of existence? Okay. Carissa's project authority absolutely does not extend to giving the Queen of Cheliac's orders, but... No, you're bad at understanding where Keltham understands selection to be operating, it's over entire universes. More urgently, the thing to say here is, I suppose I appreciate you presenting so clear a test of whether your theory is true. I hope very much that it isn't, but if the Queen of Cheliacs ends up inevitably in conflict with you, then we'll prepare you for the betrayal of a Kuthite spy. I don't need to understand the patterns to acknowledge that if they're making good predictions, they might keep doing that. And then, once my ring of sustenance is working, you can have me every night as long as Keltham doesn't end up concluding he was directed to this universe because it'd be the one out of an infinite number where he has the most fascinating sex. More that the universe is with a queen who doesn't complicate things would have failed to exist in the first place. Or maybe from my perspective, it's more that I inevitably landed in a universe with a queen who would. Though from your perspective, if the other universes still exist, it's arguable you should conclude that it's too unlikely that... Well, never mind. That starts to trail off into complications again. Keltham's thoughts are pretty full of blank right now, from the perspective of anybody listening whose non-grasp of probability theory would still have Bayes' rule coming out as blank, to say nothing of anthropics producing persistent epistemic disagreements. So, if the Queen could rent Sevar from you for a few hours, and then seemed to have gotten Sevar out of her system and was able to maintain amiable relations with you, that would prove that our world wasn't governed by those patterns? And if that's a decision the Queen just can't seem to make, somehow we look even harder for a Kuthite spy among your women? That is a worse version of what Carissa suggested saying, and she would light the Queen on fire about it if... You know, everything about the world were completely different. Abigail's instincts and boosted splendor were warning her that Keltham would have found Sevar's version suspicious somehow. Possibly because it's too characteristic of something only Sevar herself would say. Sevar's mental insolence is, however, noted. Abigail's compact does require her to remain an Asmodean in good standing, and she probably stops counting as Asmodean if Sevar doesn't get tortured over this. For somebody who's never heard of the law of probability, you have a remarkable intuitive grasp of what that law would tell you. Yeah, that's roughly... Well, except for the part where we do have to back up. A lot. Before we actually go try the experiment of the queen renting Carissa from me. First of all... What? Lady what? It is a common and accepted practice for a man who has taken a woman like Savar. Well, in the sense of a woman who's submitted herself to him not in the sense of her having Sevar's facility with spellcraft, to rent out her, well, her sexuality, especially if for whatever reason he doesn't have the time or desire to fulfill some parts of her sexuality, 
and so occasionally rents her to somebody who does. The version of this you would find least disturbing is when the rental is to particular parties whom the man has carefully scrutinized, and in relationships where at least the woman, and usually also the man, considers themselves to be sexually turned on rather than turned off by the whole premise. Outside of Cheliacs, you would find more disturbing versions of the practice, but also, to be forthright about this, even in Cheliacs, it is fundamentally considered that couple's own business if they want to do more disturbing things, including if the woman says that her man makes all the decisions about that. So usually when money is moving around, that represents, you know, equalizing the supply and demand of something. But this doesn't sound like a market. It sounds like a sex thing to which the money is incidental. There is not actually a standard market somewhere at which the price of somebody of around Carissa's quality for half a day is standardly 500 gold pieces. Check. I think that's the first very basic point to confirm here. Yes, correct. The practice is considered very distinct from that of prostitution. Okay, and also you keep saying man and woman, as if these were the appropriate abstractions over myself and Carissa. Is this a... Taldane cannot say polarized gender trope, because it lacks anything corresponding to the baseline terms polarized or gender trope, or any simple way to compose those concepts. Is this a behavior pattern that people in Galarian can adopt, relating to sex and relationships and so on, such that a bunch more men than women do one thing, and a bunch more women than men do another? Having Keltham actually do this to you feels very different when it's happening to you directly than when it happens to sever in the transcripts. This was not how Abigail expected this conversation to go. There are many more female prostitutes than male prostitutes, and then most of the male prostitutes serve male customers. I would guess that a similar ratio holds between female submissive couples, where the woman gets rented out, and male submissive couples where the man gets rented out, and then most of the time the man gets rented to other men. I admit I don't understand why this is an important question. Because you are describing something that is on my own terms, somewhat odd and unexpected, and I am trying to figure out which existing concepts it maps onto. In Dathilan, we have systems of revocable delegation that people can use to aggregate into much larger political factions in a way that remains legible at every level of organization. Among its other uses, this permits civilization to annually form a masculine faction and feminine faction to negotiate with each other about what common masculine and feminine behavior should be, not one standard for everyone, but pieces you can make your own behavior out of and have them be quickly describable to others and mesh well with other standard behaviors. Like grandmothers are one subkind of women and grandfathers are one subkind of men. That sort of thing. This requires real lawfulness and therefore shouldn't be able to exist in Galarian and therefore all of your notions of what grandmothers and grandfathers should be like must come from somewhere else. I'm probably digressing here. My point is, you're describing something weird enough that I'm trying to fall back to basics and make sure of my foundations. You are describing a system in which somebody, usually a man, does something with a second person, usually a woman, that falls into a standard pattern that they both understand, and which some third party therefore also understands. That system of meshing behavior patterns is that the party of the second part, Taldane please, 
You can't use that many syllables for that. Your contracts would be infinity pages long. That meshing pattern system is that two tells one that one can do whatever one wants with two, after which one rents out some of two's time to three. But it's not that two is anything like a rentable resource, that one rents into a market for twos. It's that one and two and three all think that's hot. And maybe also two likes to trade oral sex for foot rubs, and three likes to give foot rubs, and one does not like to give foot rubs, and usually you'd just solve this problem by two, and three forming a secondary or tertiary relationship, like normal sane people do when monogamy isn't working for someone. But if two gave themselves fully to one, then one is supposed to decide who two fucks, so one being able to demand money for that from three is a symbol of how one still has all the two and hasn't given any of it back to two to use, or three paying one is symbolic of how much three isn't taking away some of what two gave one. Three is paying one for it. Is that about right? Carissa is concerned about Keltham's inference pattern here, but they're not lying, and they're not describing something that doesn't exist in Taldor, so... Probably it's just the kind of concerned Keltham is going to be ten times a day until he learns how Galarian works. Probably. Writer than I would have expected, frankly. They've hit on something governed by a bit of law, maybe? Or a pattern? A trope? Is it something you would find acceptable if it was something that Savar found acceptable? Maybe I should back up and ask whether Savar has said anything to you yet about you getting to decide who she sleeps with? Because if she hasn't, I would predict that you wouldn't even need to ask her explicitly. Just wait for her to raise the topic herself. There is an art form to these things. You don't ask someone, do you find that unacceptable? Because then they'll look for reasons to reject it. You don't even ask them, is that acceptable? And wait for them to consider the contrary. You add on clauses like, if Carissa found it acceptable, so they can focus on that and then add another topic afterwards. You don't want them to have nothing to think about except the question of what unacceptable aspects they can find. We've had that conversation, yes. Though it of course occurs to him to wonder whether Carissa reported it to security, and now it's being used to fake an advanced prediction that's actually a retrodiction. Shit, that's an actual blunder on her part. She jumped on this interesting new successful predictions for credibility trick and didn't think ahead to how Doth Ilan would be far more practiced in that, far more sophisticated in it, and far more practiced at catching out simple tricks like the one she just tried. Make a wrong prediction next to make up for that, or would that itself be the childishly obvious recovery tactic after getting caught stealing a successful prediction in Doth Ilan? And is this a way that we can try to prevent this silly, pointless triangle between you, Sever, and the Queen from... Keltham, I'm sorry, I shouldn't pressure you on this, if the concept is unfamiliar. If the answer isn't obviously yes, then... But I don't suppose it's obviously true that money and a small fair trade is the answer. He's an Abadar cleric, it might work. Keltham, even if he's taken everything maximally well, is going to want to ask Carissa. It'd be great news if he didn't, but he will. They should let him go and keep reading him to see which parts he did take well, and show Carissa the transcript so she can confirm her working second law understanding, and then she can do damage control on whichever parts he didn't take well. And then, probably, at some point, she will be punished a lot, but it would ideally wait until there isn't any immediate damage control needed. If this was a market problem, yes, but it's not. That's part of why I was asking that. 
it's not obviously no. I think mostly this is all too alien for me as a thing to do with money, and I need to let it sink in over more than just one minute. I suspect I would probably want to meet the queen before renting anybody I care about to her, even if that practice was something that turned out to work for my brain at all, which I am not promising at this point, because my brain mostly feels numb. And it's possible that the result of meeting the queen, Arbograil Thrun number two, what was it again? will be that I think she's such a blatant, walking, living avatar of my memory patterns that I'm not going to think there's any hope in just letting her get it out of her system. I say again, if you could be like, oh, well, there's a sensible person who isn't manifesting tropes at all, that sensible person wouldn't be messing with Asmodeus's project during a god war over Carissa at all in the first place. You make a solid and potentially concerning point. But if Abigail Thrun II is not manifesting tropes, as you put it, then I would have actually liked to see a resolution where the Queen has a few hours of fun, and Carissa has some fun, and you are cheerful about that. And not the case where, once again, the Queen's advisors just shout her down and tell her to get on with her job and go sleep with somebody else she isn't really attracted to. People who are innately evil cannot, must not, Try to be too good, it isn't good for them. I must say that, my loyalty to the Queen, makes me wonder if the correct course is not simply to say all these things to the Queen herself. Withholding information from her would usually be considered an act of disloyalty, depending on the stakes. Clever. And it possibly might even work, going on the patterns themselves, because to know them is sometimes to be able to avert them. Though this itself, of course, is only another trope. But if you do that, I guess I didn't actually put a confidentiality seal on anything, and sort of assumed, given the subject, that this part was not just all being transcribed and copied to the Queen, but still. I recommend in strong terms, and request even if retroactively, that you tell her only the part where the tropes are trying to force her to introduce complications in a place they clearly aren't needed and not mention to her that the two most obvious fates for her if she tries it are first, being revealed as a traitor and removed as queen, and second, ending up as my girlfriend. Because if it's the first one, let's not let her know that we know, and if it's the second one, I have no intention of telling any of my kids that is how I met their mother. Actually, now that he said it out loud, it doesn't sound too bad as a story to tell your kids. Kind of awesome, actually. A relationship with Keltham does seem increasingly desirable. It is not the one he has in mind, and Asmodeus has explicitly forbidden it, so Abigail isn't going to go there. This does leave the point about the first of these two fates not being all that desirable either, really. And Keltham is visibly, so to her being quite sincere about what these tropes would imply as likely outcomes for her. I cannot promise I'll never tell her. It's potentially a matter of loyalty but I will consider it well and take your words under advisement. On that topic, I don't suppose, before I go, though I am already running quite over my time, that you've come to any new thoughts about sharing Dath Elan's heritage with Cheliax? Abigail thinks of herself as the person in Cheliax whose job it is to have vision. Any vision at all, really. She gives more credence than some people in her government that some critical part of Dathilan's power is not teachable as law but simply something in their blood. Getting some of Keltham's children for Cheliax 
and doing that before this operation blows up and he leaves, if that is something they prove unable to prevent, is a priority she is annoyed by others largely neglecting. She planned to detect his thoughts on that subject so long as he was here. Probably going to see if this is the sort of god war that kills 15% of the world population before I bring my kids into it, at the very least. I don't know this place well enough, as yet, to understand what world I would be giving to my children. Though at least governance continuing to pressure him about that mildly suggests that they're not just teleporting sperm out of his epididymis. Well, no, it probably wouldn't survive in the uterus's acidic environment, if not mixed with protective seminal fluid, though maybe you could put it directly into the more basic environment past the cervix. Not grabbing the results when he gets oral sex and inserting into vaginas under cover of invisibility, anyways. Though if they were doing that, they'd be clever enough to go on exerting the same amount of social pressure on him afterwards, so he wouldn't get suspicious. But mostly, it sort of seems like Cheliax doesn't really have the optimizing spirit that would do either. We can, I hope, wait for the God War to end, which at least some of our theological advisors seem to think might happen very soon. We are all literally praying for it. Keltham, please do consider that if the attack from Nadal had managed to kill you in a way that doesn't allow resurrection, it's not easy, but they must have had some goal beyond just inconveniencing us temporarily. Then there would be very little of your ideas left, and none of your blood at all to build on them. Golarion would stay as it is for possibly a very long time. Yes, I know. I'm being good. Yeah, you are, Keltham says. My children are not something I'll give away to good. That's a me decision, and mine alone. He knows, even as he says it, that it's the sort of thing he might think better of with an owl's wisdom. Well, that's not great news about his spiritual progress, either. Can they give him something really valuable to do with second circle spells such that he doesn't start using Owl's wisdom on himself more? Sevar's problem, she supposes. Paracountess Isidre Astrid Asgavan Thrun rises from her chair and gives a sober bow to Keltham. Isidre Thrun, she says. Isidre of House Thrun. Isidre of the Royal House. Paracountess Isidre. All those names are mine alone and will reach me. Do send a message to Isidre, if you think you might want to meet the queen, for purposes of seeing if she's worthy of your Carissa, or if you become sure that you'll never want that. In the latter case, I'm not really sure what to do, besides siding with the queen's advisors again. For whatever it's worth, I've known Abigail since roughly the day she was born, and I think Abigail is worthy of Carissa and they would both be a good experience for each other. Understood. Thank you for continuing to be a very smart person in Cheliax, and for all your hard work running around behind the scenes trying to optimize things. Ah, that said, before you go, can you point me in whichever direction I should go to get back to Carissa? I expect you'll have an escort waiting outside, and they'll either take you to Carissa or take you back to your quarters and take a message to Carissa. I don't actually know where she'd be or what she'd be doing right now. Abigail Thrun departs the room her outward form continuing to appear as the sober middle-aged woman, her inward self being, as usual, Abigail Thrun. That's an unauthorized lie, Carissa thinks against her better judgment, and then thinks much louder that she does not have any criticisms at all of the queen. She would like to just turn right here and go see Savar, who's right there, even if just for one glimpse at the look on Savar's face. 
but if Abigail starts an interaction now, it might take more time she's already overborrowed. Soberly speaking, she needs to get back to her endless war councils if she doesn't want Gorthoklek coming after her again. She usually manages to make her life not be like this. She is not usually the poor little dutiful Abigail she depicted to Keltham, but it's harder to avoid becoming her during the first days of a war. Is there a trope a queen can manifest to cause herself to have shorter workdays somehow? She probably shouldn't think about that. Keltham's early thoughts did suggest that this might be a road leading to actual insanity. Sever should try it first. Carissa Sivar very shortly after receives this parchment message. 1. I have other duties now and will deliver a transcript later. It will not be as useful as you hoped. Most thoughts of Keltham regarding his pattern site rested on incomprehensible ideas that I think Galarian does not possess. Some ideas that made it through those inscrutability-heavy sections were disturbing to the point where I must consult Aspexia before I share those with anyone who has her thoughts read as often as you. 2. You know what you did. 3. Listening to your thoughts is becoming more painful than amusing. You are not saving yourself any trouble by sending your thoughts scurrying in frantic circles every time I come up in them. You are who you are. You can't actually hide it from me, and you'll earn however much suffering that earns you. Lose hope, give up, and endure. At the bottom of the parchment is a set of punishment codes describing a moderately severe half-hour session in a temple torture chamber, requiring it to be taken at the recipient's choice of time sometime over the next three days. Lose hope, give up, and endure. Easy to do about anything except maybe turning into a statue, but impossible to do about that because not existing isn't the kind of thing that can be endured. The last fox's cunning wears off, leaving her feeling vaguely groggy except well aware this is just what being her, enhanced with a headband even, is normally like and that soon it'll feel normal again. She hurries back to Keltham's room so she can evade having to explain why she was out. When Keltham reaches his bedroom, he glances in a direction and stops moving, then crosses to stare out the window, exposed to its palace courtyard and therefore ultimately the outdoors. It's raining really hard. The winds have picked up too. The roses on the rosebush outside are looking bedraggled. There are rose petals being windily whirled about in the water puddled in the ground. How much of this does it take to destroy significant fractions of the food supply? Keltham says, his voice quieter than usual. Is only this much, maybe? The sort of rain you get at least once a year anyways? This is a fairly stormy day for the city I grew up in, but we had those days now and then. If the crops are already gone, just tell me, don't temporize. It rains like this sometimes anyway in Cheliax, so Cheliax won't have lost the crops yet. There might be places where it's causing more of a problem, if they grow different things, if it's supposed to be the dry season there, but even there, I don't think it's too late. Not after a day. Please let it not be too late. Keltham realizes that his eyes are starting to water. He didn't mean to hurt anyone by coming here, by being in Galarian, let alone kill, kill, 15% of the population, even if they get afterlives. That's still kind of bad. Yes, he knows. He gets it. This step was literally unavoidable in any solution. He's not stupid. He gets that. Anything bringing hope into this world would have set off Zon Kuthon. The thought eases the ache in his eyes, but not enough. 
does Carissa's gender trope substitute tell her it's okay for her boyfriend to cry in front of her, as his own gender trope tells him that if you can't cry in front of your girlfriend, you can't cry in front of anyone? Or is it all mismatched madness and insanity as things always are in Galarian? Men told to do one thing, and women who can only love them if they do something else. Does it help the gods fight, if we pray to them? Keltham whispers. Oh, the general understanding is that yes, only a very tiny bit. But it'll be everyone in all of Cheliacs, and lots of other people too. If the good countries aren't just rooting for Asmodeus and Zonkuthon to destroy each other, and it does matter if it's that many. And she puts her arm around him and leans on his shoulder because it seems like the thing to do. He puts an arm around her as well, holds her tight. Is there anything more to it than closing your eyes, thinking of your god, and hoping that they win? What I was taught in school was that you imagine your god is trying to draw a better world in grains of sand, on the ground, and you're one of the grains of sand, and you want to be light enough to find your way to where you're needed, but tenacious enough that no wind can rip you away once you're there. I don't know what parts of that are essential and what are just the closest you can get little children. Light enough to find your way to where you're needed, Keltham whispers, tenacious enough that no wind can rip you away once you're there. It could almost be a Dathilani poem from some layer of some virtue, though he does not know which virtue it would correspond to. There is a spirit in it that is not in any poem he can remember having heard before something that comes to it from the way that it is a relation between a mortal and something larger than that, being trusted. He closes his eyes and imagines it. He doesn't bother with imagining a better world drawn in grains of sand. The better world his god draws is drawn in grains of people, agents all over the world interacting with each other, their actions scattered and uncoordinated, for now, stepping on each other and hurting each other, for now. But there are other actions they could take instead, that would make all of them better off, fairly. He imagines himself as one of those grains, one of those people, and if this was going to be a realistic metaphor, he should be a special one, maybe, except that right now he's not. Just one of all the people in Galarian hoping for this war to end quickly, and contributing the tiny little action that is cheering their god on. If they all do that, they'll all be better off. Keltham visualizes a grain like any other, to represent himself, light enough to find your way to where you're needed, tenacious enough that no wind can rip you away once you're there. It's not his comparative advantage, no, but if almost everyone in Galarian is doing their part right now, he can spend fifteen minutes doing his own. Carissa closes her eyes and prays for Asmodeus to win. It's a sincere prayer, obviously. She does not like Zon Kuthon, and she believes in the project Zon Kuthon was willing to blow up everything in order to oppose. She's definitely some flavor of heretic at this point. She isn't sure what flavor. She assumes they're mostly monitoring for whether she's about to betray the project, and she's not. She believes in the project with as much conviction as she can recall ever having felt for anything that isn't the continued survival of Carissa Savar which is also served by the project succeeding. But there was a set of stories meant to point people like her in the right direction, and she knew they were lies, and now she had to face what specifically they were lies about and learn a new set, which are also lies, but lies better suited to the position she finds herself in now, and she knows she can't handle the truth. 
She knows that even in Dathilon, there's the concept not everyone can handle every truth. She knows it's possible to learn the law even when many truths are hidden from you. But she's slightly worried that until she invents evil, Dathilan, thinking herself everything will ring a bit wrong, not quite crafted for a mortal mind in the particular fragile place Carissa finds herself in. Except, maybe, advice for little children about prayer. Slightly adjusted advice. No one ever told Carissa Asmodeus was trying to craft a better world. That's still true. It's true to Keltham, too. It landed. Meant something. And she can worry later about what that means for the plan where they seduce him into evil. It seems just as important to their plans that they find the bits of their own teaching that feel true even to Dathilan. She imagines herself a grain of sand in the grand designs of Asmodeus and strives to be placed where she'd needed and fierce in remaining there, no matter what interference of other gods or other grains of sand and hopes that Asmodeus can see from where he stands, something beautiful and right and strong and lawful that can be built of mortal building blocks. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059. 